0: Welcome to another episode of No Small Jobs. I'm your host, Paul Newman. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, we are recording in the time of coronavirus as soon as we are shut down and I'm not in my usual studio. So apologies for the change in audio quality. Um, but... Uh, hopefully, you'll be able to get over that because the person I'm interviewing today is, has had a really fascinating career. Um, make sure that you connect in with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at No Small Jobs Pod. Uh, there is also the website, No Small where we uh, post up our new episodes as well as reflections on the episodes themselves. So you can stay in touch and stay connected with other listeners. Uh, Today, my guest is Tracy. She is the founder and CEO of Testigo Africa. Uh, Thanks for joining me, Tracy.
1: Oh, thank you for speaking with me.
0: Um, So, uh, you know, as as part of our preparation, you told me about your your quite varied career. Um, I guess it's probably best to start from the beginning. Um, Now, I understand your first career was as an accountant. Was that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I graduated with a, an economics degree, with an accounting major, and with a law degree. And then I qualified to be a lawyer, and then I, yeah, I started working life at KPMG as a tax
0: accountant. So let's go back a step because I know this is going to sound a bit odd. I'm actually fascinated by accountants because I I don't quite <laughs> understand how people end up in that career. I mean, I get that. I get that plenty of people probably think that way about medicine. They're like, why on earth would you want to be a doctor? Um. So, so I respect it. But what, what was it about e- economics and accounting that, that appealed to you, you know, coming out of high school?
1: It didn't appeal to me. Actually, what I was really wanting to do was law and I – You know, I found out that I could get two degrees in the same five years at university, that I could just get one degree. So I really was passionate about history and I wanted to do arts law, but you know, my mind was like, well, you know, it's not vocational necessarily to do arts. If I do economics and I do an accounting major, it's useful, it'll be useful for the rest of my life. So it was. That only that got me into accounting and that's also the reason why I you know I didn't really I did my vacation work with KPMG over three years but one year was enough being a tax accountant I'm not a natural accountant I didn't want to grow up to be an accountant and I'm certainly don't consider myself an accountant.
0: (laughs) So really you're just an overachiever then?
1: Yes that's probably a better way to put it it's just that and I look I look back now and, I, I mean, I, I did a big purge a number of years ago, but I'd kept all my, you know, university notes just in case for a very long time, which was quite crazy. But I was throwing them out and I was looking at, you know, all the the notes, just glancing at them and statistics and all the, you know, the mathematical stuff that I had to do as well for economics. And I was just like, I have no idea how I got through that degree. <laughs> and I just – it was like another person. And, look – it means I could, you know, I could do it and, but my big, my top marks were in law because that's what I was passionate about and that's what I loved. And the accounting was, it was really tough because I I never, even when I was studying it, I didn't get into it. I just did it because it'd be useful. And so, yeah, it was a bit silly to then go and be an accountant.
0: (laughs) So why did you choose to spend that first year being a tax accountant?
1: Because (laughs) I'd done vacation work with the firm with KPMG for three years and I knew I had a guaranteed job and I wanted to go to India for four months and it meant that I missed the normal pickup for a law firm but the but the accounting firm said they'd take me on whenever I was ready (laughs) was that reason
0: well convenience and job security makes sense like that's a perfectly good reason to do things (laughs) um out of curiosity why did you want to spend four months in India
1: oh I'd been um, previously, like when I finished university, I went to India and I was blown away by it. I just thought it was the most amazing place. So then I qualif- after I thought after I qualify as a lawyer, I want to go back and I want to see more of it. So it was, yeah, it was just to go back and spend the time there. But, you know, it, you couldn't get a bigger contrast between India where I was literally travelling back then. And we're talking about, you know, long time ago, back in the 80s, I was living on... a day for my food, my accommodation, and my transport.
0: That's incredible. How how did you go about doing that?
1: I just did everything super cheaply. You know, I'd stay in very, very basic, cheap places. I just ate, you know, very cheap food on the streets. I used rickshaws. um, You know, I just had a backpack and I did it the cheap way. And, you know, and also I did it that way because I, you know, I, I was coming out of five years at university, then another year to qualify. I, I i you know and the only money I'd earned was doing vacations when I used that to live the following year, and I would study again, so I didn't have the money to even do it in a more luxurious way.
0: I mean, was that this sounds like an obvious question, but was that difficult for you?
1: No, not at all, not at all. I mean, it was amazing, and it mean meant you know I traveled on my own i it was just me a lonely planet book and a backpack, and it meant that I met local people. Um, I remember, you know, one one gorgeous old man was, a ricksh- you know, the bicycle rickshaws, and mm-hmm. I felt terrible because, you know, he's this skinny man, and old man, and he was riding his bike when I was in the back with my backpack. And he invited me to his home for a party, and I said, okay. I went to his home, and his home was just a piece of black plastic caught between some bricks as sort of the roof, and, you know, that was it, and yet he had some flour and some chili and he made me to parties in his home I mean it, it it humbled me that trip but I mean it also totally screwed up you know going back to Australia and then going to work for KPMG and in tax and I just the contrast was too much I was just it was insane it was like you know I'd, I'd come out of a place where everyone was just really poor you know now India's changed of course. Um, There's a lot of middle class now and it's not the same. But back then, oh, my goodness. And it was very hard to come back and be professional, put on a suit. And I didn't know how to process it. I didn't, you know, I was there helping rich people get richer and doing, you know, working on returns for high net worth individuals. And I'd come back from a place where people lived in hovels and everything.
0: Um, I guess I imagine that's probably what inspired you to start getting into charity work but there was obviously a a large gap between in terms of career between then and and starting testigo right
1: it's about 25 years gap (laughs) a long time
0: (laughs) but obviously you had you developed some social awareness quite early on did you so after once you once you left the you know decadent western capitalist society job of being a tax accountant did your did that sort of um Did that social awareness influence or or how you chose what your next job would be?
1: Uh, No, not really. But I I did do volunteer work at a community legal centre and I did that for years. And so that need to help people and to be there for people that don't have the resources was there from the very beginning, you know, and I did volunteer work when I was younger as well. So that was already there, but my next job was still a professional job. In fact, they, they employed me because I had up-to-date tax knowledge and because i was a lawyer and an accountant so my next job was still professional but i was still at the same time doing all this voluntary work so both of the both sides of me in a way existed it's just the corporate one sort of took over for a lot of years um
0: uh, we we kind of skimmed over this because because of uh, the tangent into india but what what about law was it what inspired you back when you were younger
1: we Oh, God, I'm going to sound like totally not-focused person. It was because of school. Um, I did well in Form 5, and the teacher said, you know, if you apply yourself, you'll do very well in, a, you know, HSC. And so I thought, okay, but I wasn't doing the sciences. So, you know, it would have been medicine, of course, if mm. I'd done sciences. And I thought, well, I'm doing the humanities. But so the highest HSC mark required was for law. So I was like, well, let me just aim for law, because then I can do anything. If I get those marks, then I can choose any course. So it was that simple again, except – and I did love legal studies. I did enjoy it and learning all about it. So there was a lot more interest in it as well. But that was the main reason, again. It was sort of not like when I grew up, I want to be a lawyer either.
0: Do you you remember – was there something that you actually wanted to be when you grew up? Can you remember that at all?
1: Uh, Look, you know, I've travelled to, what, about 85, 90 countries now. And we started or my parents started us when I was about, I think, 13, 14. We went to America and we had this amazing holiday and that started my passion for travel. And we went to a lot of the beautiful national parks and I wanted to be a park ranger. I wanted to spend all my time in nature. That was my passion. That was what I you know, I would have loved to have done, but I didn't take it seriously. You know, because that society wouldn't have. Well, the society and people. I, like, you know, I went to a girls' a private girls' school. You don't do that if you go get that sort of education. You know, you do the, the corporate thing. You get the big job, the higher paid job.
0: I mean, look, that's a uh, that's common amongst I, I think a lot of cultures. Certainly within Asian cultures. I'm Vietnamese myself, and so I I know how you feel. You know, it's um. There's a sense that if you are smart enough, it is a waste not to use that intelligence for something, which is really a shame because intelligence doesn't always... um Match up with passion necessarily. I, and there, are, I remember uh, going uh, in my first year of medical school. There were a number of people who quite openly admitted that the only reason they did medicine was because they had the marks. They had no real drive to contribute to the community. They didn't like the science. It was just because, well, what else do I do with these marks? And um, unfortunately, uh, you know what then happens is that they they took the place of people who really did want to be doctors but may not have had as like quite enough marks to get through. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think it's actually very, very common. And it is, it's, it's, it's a shame that we, um, it's certainly, uh, the, you know, in our generation, generations above us, that was, it was more the focus about uh stability. But I guess in a more positive way, this generation, I think there's a lot more focus on passion. So maybe, you know, if, uh, if you had grown up in this era and you wanted to be a park ranger, your parents might've gone, all right, great just let's go make you a park ranger let's get you into zoology or ecology or something along those lines so uh, I, I, yeah you the what you're describing really I don't think it makes you sound flighty <laughs> or different I think actually it's it's just this you know part of the times really
1: yeah but the thing is too I ended up having an amazing career and I ended up being absolutely passionate about it in in my corporate life so it wasn't that it was wasted. It just was – I started finding that passion when I wasn't being the traditional accountant and a traditional lawyer. I did it in roles where I was still employed because I was a lawyer and because of my you know, my, my qualifications. But, um, that, but the passion came because I did it in a, a different way. Like the next job I took after the KPMG role was at a publishing company and they ran – also ran workshops and they published these loose-leaf um, – manuals and that was I I loved that job I thrived in it and they wanted someone who had the up-to-date tax knowledge so it it opened the door to something completely different and I would never have thought you know again I will I want to go into publishing but I loved it and I was in publishing for about seven years in total in both Australia and in London so you know that came out of it but you know going back to what you said about study I remember when I was in, in law There was a mature age student, this woman who was a thoracic surgeon, and she was studying law. And she was, you know, one of the, you know, as you know, as a kid straight from school, you you sort of look at these mature age and go, oh my god, because they were serious about their study, whereas we were just like, yeah, just give us a degree and let us get out of here. (laughs) And she used to be on call, and she'd have to disappear from lectures to go and, you know, cut people open, whatever, you know, whatever thoracic surgeons do, cut throats, I guess. And um yes. But at the time, I remember thinking, oh, my God, these mature age students are so serious. Anyway, years later, I got the opportunity to do a master's degree. And I was one of those old <laughs> mature age students who totally left <laughs> up every class. And I totally adored everything. So, you know, I've been on both sides of everything pretty much.
0: I think there is something to be said for... Uh, approaching a, a passion for the sake of passion and so to come back to what I was saying before my i imagine and do correct me if i'm wrong of course that because you came into your master's degree with this desire and this drive it was less obligatory so maybe as a younger person you might have been oh well this is just what you do i'll get through it whereas by that point you'd sort of you'd had some life experience you knew what you really wanted to do and um and the all the, what the education did was it just you know solidified your love of of whatever you were studying
1: yeah and I think too you know when I did my master's there was no ego in it at all there was none of that I'm not I'm not saying it was in there when I was doing my you know my undergraduate degrees but the master's because you know I was really lucky to get a scholarship and that I got the scholarship because I was already running to Stigl, Africa and i had been running it for a number of years and it, yeah it I just was so grateful to be in the course, but also most of my fellow students were mature age students. They weren't straight out of university and they were all in the, you know, for purpose or not-for-profit sector. And so, you know, a huge part of the enjoyment of my master's was actually networking, meeting other people. And I'm still really good friends with a lot of people that I studied with for that master's degree. So yeah, it came from a very different space and I wasn't proving anything to anyone. Um, you know, when I did the first year, I got a prize for the highest achieving student and it totally shocked me. I had no idea I'd get something (laughs) like that and I wasn't aiming for it. I was just, I wasn't even trying to get top marks or trying to do any of that. All I was doing was actually adoring every single thing I did in that course.
0: And, uh, for, uh, I I work in education in, in a few fields, um, teaching uh, medical students as well as uh, GP trainees. And um, one of the things I've noted about education is that motivation makes a big difference. And people talk about it in in vague senses, but particularly in education, I've noticed it has the most impact in that when you are motivated, when you are passionate about the topic that you are studying, it doesn't feel like study. It's really just sort of, um, you're essentially just absorbing knowledge and, and it all it does is it fuels your passion even further whereas study for the sake of study is a burden it's a job it's it's a thing you have to get through and so the the optimal way to deliver education is to find that passion is to try and utilize the students um, way of thinking the way they they learn and and combine it in with the thing that interests them and that's more likely to produce a retention of information um, than if you simply ask them uh, to take a textbook and memorize the words.
1: Yeah, and I agree. But also, I think, you know, this, of course, with this corona, you know, the COVID-19 period we're in now, a lot of people have had to revert to online, but they were also moving that master's degree I did online. And I thought that, you know, that's going to go back to what you were saying about almost like, well go back and read the books and get the technical knowledge so you could pass the exams because all that personal contact's gone, all the discussions are gone. Even when I did the first year of my master's, we it was set up in a quite unusual way and we'd have like three full days together and then a few weeks and another three full days and, the, and, and then they changed it later to night school and when I did some classes at night school, again, it was completely different. It was more people in the office trying to get their master's to help them move forward with their courses. So, yeah, and, and I think the it's how it's also presented that, that taps into the passion because you can be passionate about an area but if you're just learning it technically and not engaging with other people and not, you know, feeding off each other's enthusiasm, you, you don't have as much passion anyway, I think.
0: So what was this a master's of?
1: It's actually, it's a Master of Commerce, which makes it sound like, oh, <laughs> but, 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 but. It's um, in social investment and philanthropy, which is the whole thing that I just thrived on.
0: So what was the, the purpose of doing the Masters?
1: Ah, because I was running, you know, and I still am, running Testigo, Africa, running my own charity or NGO. And, you know, to study social investment, social impact. Um, you know, and philanthropy, how do you raise money? I mean, how do you do it? How do you give grants? How do you apply for grants? I mean, it wasn't just practical. It was the whole theory behind things and the ethics, you know, about giving. And I mean, that stuff's fascinating, why people give. Um, how do you make choices? Especially, you know, in this this current climate right now, you know, we're watching a government say, okay, we'll put in health before we put in the economy or whatever. But that and that's a pretty big choice. But, yeah, it was it's it's it was something that I could apply straight away. And the other bonus, which was massive for me, is we had some really great assignments. And I got my fellow classmates to agree to do them on my own NGO. So I got <laughs> the benefit of all these experts working with me for something that we all had to do to get our marks to get through our master's degree.
0: Fantastic. What I mean, I'm I'm curious about the ethics of giving. Did that also dive in uh, into a bit of um, behavioural psychology too?
1: Well, yes, it did, and I think that fascinated me because, you know, coming from a background where, you know, I've been in corporate for 20 more than 20 years and working in very big law firms, and, you know, a lot of it was about, well, the psychology of giving and all that, Um, and that's fascinating because I thought, well, just because people earn money doesn't mean they give. But there's this whole other ethical um, thing that we discussed, which I was probably on one extreme from most of my classmates, which was, We gave an example of, um, you know, a cigarette company, tobacco company, and if they're offering money, would you take it, a grant? And I'm like, hell yes, of course I'd take it, you know. (laughs) I'm working the Masai, I'm facilitating the transformation of Masai in Tanzania. Of course I would take it on their behalf. Why wouldn't I? But if I had to promote smoking, would I take it? Well, no, I wouldn't want to take it. And if they gave out cigarettes and they said, you have to give out free cigarettes to Mass, who don't really smoke anyway, but would I want to? No. But if there was no conditions attached, I said, yes, to me it's in some ways cleansing the money. It's the purpose that you put the money to, not where it came from. But that created, as you can probably imagine, a massive debate. And I'm like, well, yeah, fine. If I got a choice of an organic seed company, and a tobacco company, hey, I'd choose the organic seed company, but if if they're, you know, if I don't, why would I say no? And so it's this sort of stuff that was fascinating to me and it, and it's that and the psychology of giving. I got um, I got an amazing book called the, the Soul of Money and the woman who wrote that raised billions of dollars for The Hunger Project when it first was, you know, started and it's fascinating, her stories, the whole you know that money is just paper but it's not it's energy and we all have belief systems that don't serve us and and that's what i've got writing to because i've had to and i studied that that was part of our philanthropy masters
0: and what do you think was the biggest lesson you learned um, about the psychology of giving
1: um probably you know i had to learn that just because people have money doesn't mean they will give and even if they have money and they give doesn't mean they will give to Africa you know and not to take it personally you know that I failed somehow in not being able to get money for what I'm doing so you know that's quite sobering for me I was quite naive when I went into this space I didn't have you know a background in fundraising or any of this I just had to do it I just as I've done everything in my life I have pretty much just jumped in the deep end and done it. But that was hard and that and I had to really work myself like I had to work at releasing these assumptions and beliefs and everything that I didn't even know I had until I realized that they were there and they were blocking me from being effective.
0: What were those beliefs?
1: The beliefs like, you know, that every you know, people with money should give <laughs> and that that you know, they should that, that belief. Why should they? It's their money. And the belief, too, that money is a limited resource, it's not abundant, that we can't just create money, we have to work hard for it. You know, there's a lot of sayings that we use as well, that's all about money doesn't grow on trees, you know. These sort of sayings, they're there and we use them, we don't even think about the meaning of them. But they actually... dictate what happens in our lives if we if that we just say those things then we believe them at some level and those beliefs are often within our dna and in our body and then we have you know i've done body work to to release beliefs that don't serve me because i am a hundred percent reflection on my ngo and if i have limited money beliefs my ngo will reflect that as well
0: um I, I know we're we're jumping around a little bit here chronologically but let's let's talk about Testigo because we've we spent a lot of time talking about it how did you come about to create Testigo Africa? Oh
1: it was another one of those accidents. <laughs> <laughs> it was I never ever had on my list my to-do list to set up a charity. So again um but it came out it was really serendipitous you know all these things that happened but I went, I was turning 40 and I was in London working in HSBC Bank in the legal department so I was in a very big corporate job again and I wanted to turn 40 somewhere different and I decided that the real Africa with animals was going to be where I turned 40. So my first trip was to turn 40 and I ended up in Kenya and Tanzania and I I look back now and I think there must have been some sort of soul destiny, you know, that I was following that I didn't realise because I had a friend. I was working, well, actually, it was just as I was transitioning from a barrister's chambers where I was working to HSBC Bank and I had a fellow barrister who said to me, you know, let's let's go and drive in, in South Africa together. And she would have been a great person to travel with, but I was like, no, I have to go to Kenya and Tanzania. But it was that first trip that I met a Maasai in Zanzibar literally half an hour before I flew out back to London who gave me, you know, we swapped email addresses and there was an email waiting when I got back to London and he invited me back and I was already going to, four months later, I decided I was going to take another holiday in Tanzania because I loved it and I was going to go back to Zanzibar and he said there's a ceremony at my village come and I did and at that ceremony they asked please help us, you know, can you write letters in English? We have a water project we want to get off the ground. And I said, of course I'll help. Um, but something amazing happened at that ceremony and I got on the plane to fly to Zanzibar from the village and I just burst into tears. I couldn't work out what was wrong with me, or you know, what, what I, was, I couldn't understand myself at all. And when I got to Zanzibar, I met my friends and I kept crying. They're like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I just don't know. I don't know why I'm crying. And if I look back now, I think my heart was opened. I'd found my tribe. Um, I don't mean I'm Maasai. I've never tried to be Maasai. But for some reason, at some very deep level, I had to be there. And, look, I didn't go easily and I was kicking and screaming. But ultimately, you know, I said I'd help. I spoke to very big charities about taking on this project thinking I'd handball it to someone else and no one took it on and then I then you know they had their worst drought in history and no rain for three years and all their livestock was pretty much dying they lost about 95 percent and at that point I'm like okay I, I just have to help and i might as well just set up a charity myself and just raise the money and make it happen and that's just how it happened and you know, again, it wasn't that I thought it all through, and you know, okay, for my next phase of my life, I'll run a charity, but it just happened, and that's the magic in you know following your passion, allowing doors to open, and walking through them. It
0: uh, you talked about the idea of serendipity. I mean, from from what what you've told me so far, you it it, it probably it sounds to me like this testigo was a. Um, confluence of all those passions that you'd had, like the, the very deep emotional passions about social justice, about, uh, you know, contributing to communities, about nature. Um, and it all just came to a head. Like, it, it just seems to a point where it all just came together. And it, it was, yeah, it, it's in in true serendipity and destiny and fate or whatever you want to call it. It just kind of came to a meeting point And maybe at that point you had, you had discovered uh, – you tapped into something that you hadn't really tapped into before in your career.
1: Yes. And also it wasn't that I was happy in my career. You know, I'd had a big breaking point when I was in Hong Kong, I was working for a New York law firm. Um, I was in a global position. I was traveling constantly. I was earning megabucks. I was living on the 46th floor of an apartment building right on the harbour with breathtaking views. And all I could do, I'd look out the window and I wish I had the guts to jump. And I you know I paid for a life coach, and I said, "I'm not happy, make me happy because I have everything." and you know that's where I was at at one point now then I ended up, and there's a story in that too, but I ended up in back in London because I'd gone from I'd been headhunted from London and I'd ended up in Hong Kong, and I went back to London and then I started working again eventually after having eight months off and totally losing my identity and not knowing who I was. and I did do the next position differently i deliberately chose to do the next role I took on after that break um, operating from my heart instead of my mind, and it was a very interesting experience. So, you know, and then I ended up going, okay, well, I need to get a bit more serious again. My mind was like, you know, Tracy, you've got to get your career back on track. You've been a bit indulgent, and that's when I went to HSBC. And I look I wasn't happy. I was trying to fit back into the career that my soul was like, Hey, you've done it. You've ticked the box. You had other things to do. And as you said, you know, when you were saying to me about how it was everything came together, my love for nature and and I have always been You know, even in corporate, I would fight for the underdog. If someone wasn't treated well, I would fight for them in whatever job I've had. It's always been part of me. And it all did come together. And as you were describing that, my whole body ended up covered in goosebumps. I just feel that that's the truth of it. Somehow all of it was meant to be somehow brought together and it was meant to be in Tanzania and I don't really know why, but that's, that's like a soul contract or some other level that I was compelled to be there.
0: So uh, what does Testigo Africa do?
1: Well, <laughs> we firstly did the water project that I promised to help with. So we, we got water into the village that had been asking for water. So that was sort of the number one thing. And, yes, at that point I could have gone, I've done what they wanted and gone back to corporate. And part of me definitely wanted to do that because it would have been easier. Um, but then, I, you know, I was living in a mud hut Um, my best friend is Maasai and she's been best friends for 15 years now and you know I was you know hanging out with her watching how hard the lives are of the Maasai women and I'd known about permaculture because my brother was into it and he used to send me you know green in the desert YouTube videos and stuff like that and Somehow I don't even know how it happened. I just put two and two together and thought, well, actually permaculture would be amazing for the Maasai and it would give them back the self-sufficiency that they have when they have their livestock. But you know, their livestock had been decimated and they were in a terrible position, not able to look after themselves. So we've you know, now we we train in permaculture and I you I I set up the very first training with a. Um, a guy who a tanzanian guy who had a horticultural degree but after he trained the first group i then used people we trained all my trainers are maasai people that i've trained and we've trained 38 villages now and five governments five schools primary and secondary schools in tanzania in permaculture so learning how to grow vegetables um but learning you know organically holistically there's a whole uh philosophy behind permaculture and I brought a lot of that in and adapted it to the Maasai and to Tanzania. Um, uh, the,
0: so the whole reason why you and I sort of connected was actually not related to permaculture at all but but another project <laughs> that Testigo Africa does. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah this is more um, again you know those things that, that wasn't on my to-do list with Testigo either and but there's you know I keep I mean us constantly to help kids stay at school and go through their studies and everything. And so we are sponsoring a number of children through school, Maasai children. But also one of my assistants who has a fascinating story in himself, I mean, amazing story, but he was helping me for three years with Testigo and he's a young guy. He started with me when he was about, I think, 18. And he, you know, he, he worked with me for a while. He said he wanted to be a doctor but there was no way he could see a way forward to be one. But he had this desire and he actually had a photo of himself with a white, one of those white things you guys wear. I don't know, white supper thing. And he had a stethoscope around his neck and he had a photo of him and he's like, that's what I want to be. And when he finished with me, I, you know, I gave him I think about three months' pay and said, keep this safe, use it to help yourself going forward with whatever you want to do because, you know, he needed the break. Anyway, he used that money to start university and then he found out from other students that if he did really well there's a chance he could get scholarships to help him through and so he's he's actually finishing this year his medical studies and you're one of the very kind Melbourne doctors who's helping to sponsor him through and he's he's a natural he's he's just incredible he was obviously meant to be a doctor and he's got some incredible stories which we'll have to talk about sometime as well. And he's currently, um, he's he's had one day already on the Corona ward in one of the hospitals in Arusha in Tanzania. So it's very interesting. It's very real, obviously, what's happening now. But, but um, even more what, you know, they have one ventilator in the whole hospital and 20 in the country apparently. Mm. So, yes, uh, we support. Well, like good luck and that you know and the thing is that I love I've supported another Masai who's now a school teacher I supported him through school and teachers college but these people then go on to help lots of other people so it's that ripple effect it's not just that I helped one person here and there it's all the impact they've had on keeping other people like good luck obviously saving lives and the teacher obviously educating the whole new generation
0: so since you mentioned it, why, why don't you tell, tell us a story about good luck? Just w- whatever your favourite one might be.
1: Uh, well, for starters, you know, he's lucky to be alive. He's, he's He had a very young mother. I think she was about 16. And she'd gone to Nairobi to work. And um, she had a friend with her. They're both Tanzanians. And not Maasai, a different tribe. And she had the baby. She well, she's Anyway, she doesn't know who the father was. She had this baby, and then she freaked out and said to her friend, let's let's just leave the baby in the hotel and run away. So he was left, but the friend, after a few hours, felt guilty and went back to rescue Good Luck, and she decided to look after him herself. So she ended up adopting him, and then she later married a Maasai man. So he was brought up in the Maasai way and circumcised in the Maasai way, learned to speak Maasai as well as the other tribal language of his new mother, adopted mother, as well as English, as well as Swahili. Um, But when he was um, trying, you know, just starting university with medicine, and he'd obviously got good marks at school, he just didn't have any funds to go anywhere with it. He'd been, I mean, his first year he'd been doing Practical work, whatever. Sorry, intern. I don't know what you call it as a doctor, but he'd been helping out in one of the hospitals, and there was a white man there, and he needed a catheter removed, and they were apparently talking in Swahili. Oh, you know, who wants to do it? And Good Luck said, I'll do it, and then he took it out and everything, and did it nicely. And then they all said, Well, what are you going to charge him? And Good Luck was like, Well, the normal rate. And he, they were like, No, no, he's white. You got to charge him more. And Good Luck saying, No, 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 I'm not. We should charge the same rate. Anyway, they turns out this guy said to him in English, can I have your phone number? And then later the guy rang him and they met up. And this guy's fluent in Swahili and he was listening to everything that was being said about him. And how good <laughs> luck had actually come through and shown all this integrity without even knowing this guy understood. And it turns out this guy ran a flying doctor's service in Arusha, and he said to good luck, can you come and work with my clinic in your school holidays, uni- university holidays, and I will sponsor um, some of the fees for your university. I'll help you. So that's one of, the, the, one of many stories. But, you know, good luck. He nearly died when he was working for me. He, um, three days running, he came to me um, to work with me and he had a headache And I gave him tablets. I said, maybe it's malaria or whatever. And eventually on the third day, and I have no idea why, because I'm not a doctor, I said, you have meningitis. You need to go straight to the clinic now. Here's the money. Go straight there. Don't go home. And he went to the clinic, and they tested him, and they said he did have meningitis. And if he'd waited 12 more hours, he'd be dead. And he actually ended up in ICU for a week, and everyone else in ICU died. And he came out. He's already skinny, but he came out absolutely like a skeleton. He's just—I mean, they're just a couple of the stories. But he's incredible. I mean, his his name is Good Luck, and I think his name is how his life has been.
0: Mm. Are there any other things that you hope to achieve with Testigo Africa?
1: Absolutely, because the—you know—we have we have had the bushfires, and now of course we've got COVID nineteen and. Look, people understandably are just not focusing on giving to Africa. And I just, that that older model of, you know, grant money, I I used to get some AusAid money, Australian Aid money until they cut it pretty much completely to Africa. Um, I'm now looking at doing a lot more income earning activities, if you like, like more like a social, a for-profit social enterprise model and you know, I led a safari last year, and that went really well. Taking them to Maasai land, showing them my my projects. Um, so I'm doing a lot more of that, bringing school groups over, immersing them in in the Maasai experience, and then taking them on safari. They've got, and I'm writing my book. I've been filming um, the Maasai in my journey for 10 years as well. I have a lot of video diary footage as well. There's gorgeous footage of ceremonies and everything. I want the documentary to be finished. Um, yeah, there's there's I've got lots of ideas and I'm bringing those forward now.
0: Um, just out of curiosity, does testigo mean something?
1: Yes, it does. It's the Spanish word for witness.
0: Ah, right. So why did you name your charity that?
1: Yeah, well, another one of those weird things. Um, I was in London uh, working and I was also. I was in corporate but I was also on the weekends working with a female shaman and she said to me one of your roles in life is to be a testigo and she used the word because she was half English half Spanish and I you know that word struck me I obviously felt that yes I am a witness there's reason I'm seeing a lot of what I see and when it came time to set up a charity it wasn't even I had I didn't even have to think about it I just knew immediately that it was going to be called Testigo. Uh,
0: I want to go back to your time in Hong Kong. You said there was a bit of a story around, you know, how you were feeling at that point. Mm.
1: Yeah, I really burnt out. I mean, you know, I just, I was working, and I was earning a, a huge sum of money, but I was working massive hours and, you know, every day of the week and I was traveling constantly and, I was trying to be happy with my lot but I obviously wasn't. But um, I did eventually just resign because my health started breaking down as well and I just couldn't keep going. Like, and, I, and I found this amazing book in a bookshop. Actually, was about, I, I just got the, the Star Ferry across the harbour and I walked into one of the bookshops and this book was called The Joy of Burnout. And I read the back cover and I got goosebumps and I'm like, oh, my God. So it was all about, you know, how when you burn out because the passion has gone from what you do, but you keep doing it. And I think that's a really good thing to realize, you know, the passion for my corporate career and what I was doing and had been there for many years, but it was gone and I was still trying to do it. And I was in a very big job where I couldn't cruise. I had to put in everything because that's how I got to that position. And so I worked my way through the book and realized, you know, that there was this massive gift. In fact, it was like a crossroads. It was time for me to really look at what, like, explore what I really wanted to do. And it actually triggered a whole big healing process that was very painful and very long, and it doesn't really ever stop anyway. But just, you know, like looking at, you know, who am I? And, you know, when when I left Hong Kong, I didn't know where to, you know, what to do. I knew I was going to go to Greece. And do a course with this same woman who wrote the book about the joy of burnout. I had a very interesting experience in Greece um, where, you know, I had energy shoot through my body and I, my whole body was shaking for 20 minutes and I was, it was scary. But after that, I suddenly saw things differently. I could see energy around people. Like I had, it was, it was incredible. It was like a very big change. And I had to start saying, well, who am I? And people would say, well, what do you do? You know, you asked me at the beginning, what should I label you? And I don't use labels now. I did then. I was a lawyer. And people would say to me in this period, well, well, who are you? What do you do? And I'm like, well, I'm nothing. I don't know who I am. And I would never tell people I'd been a lawyer because I thought, well, that's not who I am. And I couldn't cut my hair. Because when I was a lawyer, I had very lovely, you know, I had very beautifully, mani- you know, managed hair. I had lots of lovely jewelry, perfect makeup, and suddenly I wasn't that lawyer anymore, and I wasn't wearing my Amani suits anymore, and I had no idea who I was. I didn't know what to wear, how to do my hair. I, I could literally was stripped of everything, um, and that was a it was a completely interesting moment and look I've been on them again I've had moments again when I've you know pretty much gone through similar things but they they they're the moments that I I now look back with and I am back at and I'm so grateful because they're the moments where you know when your heart's broken or you've been brought to your knees you become truly authentically who you really are because you have no choice
0: you, you mentioned that you talk about your heart, that you then decided to sort of lead more with your heart than your mind when you chose your next career. But if I, if I've kept track correctly, the next <laughs> job was actually with H, HSBC, right?
1: No, it was in the barristers chambers. That was the next. All oh, right. Yeah. And it was, I was in, I actually went back to the UK after I did the course in um, Greece, I didn't know where to go and ended up in the UK and back in the UK. Cause I'd been there before I went to Hong Kong and um, I ended up on a Tibetan Buddhist island in Scotland. And I was there when one of the friends I'd met in Greece who lived in London said, There's a job at my barrister's chambers. You know, are you interested? So um, I said, Yes. But I came. Now, this is how this was a really weird transition for you. I stayed at that island and I went in, I meditated twice a day with the Tibetan Lama leading the meditation. Um, It was an incredible experience. Then I travelled with a Tibetan nun back to London and I stayed in the London Tibetan Buddhist Centre behind Waterloo Station. And I started a job back in corporate (laughs) living in a dormitory in a Tibetan Buddhist centre and I made a deliberate decision. I said, well, I'm going to experiment. I've got nothing to lose and I'm going to go into this barrister's chambers. And I was actually taken into that Chambers, as a, a role doing business development for them. So it was not being a lawyer. And I'm going to do this one leading from my heart. I'm going to deliberately engage and work from my heart. And it was an experiment. And I did it for a year. And when I left, you know, the QC, the Queen's Council barrister that did my leaving speech, was crying when I was leaving. And I thought, wow, I touched people because I came from my heart. But it was an experiment because I, I'd been – Oh, I don't like the expression, but, you know, like a ball breaker in corporate. I look back and I feel ashamed a lot of the time because I was so ambitious and so um, masculine in some some ways. You know, I wasn't who I truly was. I was playing a role to survive in that environment.
0: How did your approach to your career change by leading with your heart?
1: Well, that job was, it wasn't a career move. You know, I was, I was very fortunate. I was paid enough. I worked only three days a week. Uh, I was paid enough in three days to live in London. So I was paid very well, but it wasn't like a career move that you'd look at my CV and go, wow. Um, it, it made me realise that I could still do a really good job, in fact, a better job if I came to a, a job from my heart. So it really did change how I did things and probably opened me up to run a charity because I could not have run a charity, I don't believe, especially as the way I've run it and running from passion if I hadn't sort of made that shift. But then I moved to HSBC in the legal department and I found that hard because it was much harder to operate from my heart there. The barristers' chambers – It's like a group of, you know, it's like a dysfunctional family. they just got these amazing personalities. And, I I mean, it's London barristers, London QCs. You know, it's it's incredible. And then I was suddenly in a bank that was very hierarchical, um, very structured, and it was hard. I found it really challenging. And I think, you know, well, that's when I went to Tanzania, when I just moved, I just started at the bank when I, took time out to go to Tanzania. And so I was coming from a place where there was angst and I'm not quite sure how I fit in. And I thought I was faking it well until I when I resigned they said, Yeah, you never fitted in. You were never one of us. And I'm like, but I thought I was. I thought my C V said I was. But I'd obviously changed too much. So yeah.
0: (laughs) I mean it does it does from an emotional perspective feel like it was a bit of a step backwards. Why did you decide to leave the barrister's office and go to HSBC?
1: It wasn't a step backwards in terms of career because I was actually in a role. I was I was the head of uh, – what was my role? I don't know what it was called. I was a professional support lawyer, and there's one role like that in legal department. So I was employed as a lawyer, not as a marketing or business development person. So my salary jumped way up again, um, and I was doing a legal role that took me across the whole of HSBC across the world. So it was a global role. So it was actually a very big career move up. So – Intellectually and in terms of my CV, it was a up move. Um, yes, it, was, it, it, it wasn't a move that nurtured my heart and it wasn't nurturing. And I think that's where it was such a contrast to the barristers' chambers.
0: Um, again, we're, we're not doing this in the most logical sense, but we <laughs> talked a bit before about publishing because you, you obviously look back on that job with a lot of affection. What was it about that job that you really enjoyed?
1: Yeah, well, I was in publishing in London as well, and I didn't enjoy it. But the one in Melbourne, I loved. I had a fantastic managing director, um, and I had freedom. Like I, you know, when I was in KPMG, I had six-minute units. I had to charge my time every six minutes to clients, and I had obviously minimum minimal minimum charge out charge rates that I had to do. You know, minimum number of hours every month, and. Suddenly, I'm in this publishing company where I can be creative, where I could start new publishing lists, where I managed all these authors who were partners in law firms and accounting firms and everything. But I just, I thrived on the job. And I think a lot of it was the freedom. A lot of it was a managing director encouraging the team to, you know, to, to be innovative um given a free reign you know you're very controlled when you're in a place like kpmg i mean again there's a lot of hierarchy and rules around how you operate and what you're meant to do and you have layers and layers of people above you so that and that probably just showed me you know it was it was a natural fit and i think you know i'm always i've always excelled in those roles even in law firms where i've had a fantastic boss within a law firm where i can do the freedom to be, have the freedom to create. And that's when I've excelled in my career, when I've been able to do that rather than constrained.
0: Um, I guess, again, talking about the idea of serendipity, but maybe – maybe that's something that you learned about yourself as you, which then informed your current career now, and that it was really important for you to be able to have a bit more control over your life, but also to, you know, use your right brain more to try and um, when it came to decision-making.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think, but I, I, mean, I, but I went through a stage and I sort of look back at that and I call it my marshmallow stage when I became so heart-focused, especially with my charity, that, I just I and I judged the corporate me or the right side brain me as being uh, sorry the left brain the corporate me as being you know bad and I rejected that part of me for a lot of years you know running my charity and I would have been much better to have put the two together and found the balance so I've really been like one extreme to the other and now I'm you know, much more balanced, bringing my mind and my heart together. Before I, I really didn't because I, I, I judged one bad and then I judged the other bad. Then I'm like, well, I don't want to be a marshmallow anymore. I want to bring my, <laughs> my intellect back because it's still me. It's just I haven't really engaged it. So, I, I mean, it's been that sort of journey. It's, it's been quite strange. But um, when you look at it from a, you know, I like being the observer or the witness And if you step back and look at your life and what you've gone through, it's very interesting. It's just hard if you sit in the emotions.
0: One of the... uh One of the main reasons why I started this podcast in the first place, which I I, I imagine you're probably going to share this to some degree, is that I think there's a lot that you learn from life experience about yourself, and unfortunately, a lot of it requires you to make mistakes, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, Making mistakes is something that we all inherently do, but by our very nature, uh, certainly by my nature, I, I try to avoid mistakes, and so I guess... The whole point of doing this was to sort of show people that even if you make a mistake or even if you make a decision that that leads you down a path that brings you maybe emotionally a bit more uh, down than you would like, you can learn something from it. It's not necessarily something that has no purpose. As long as you can find the purpose in it, as long as you can learn more about yourself as a result of it, you can come out of it um, in a much more positive sense. And I would say that's probably what happened to you, really.
1: Yeah, and I think I've become better at that now. I think before I would get stuck and, I, I'd, you know, be this self-flagellation, like, oh, I'm so silly, why did I do that or why did I make that decision or whatever, and I think now I'm much more, I might still feel that briefly and then I'll go, well, this isn't serving me to feel this way and it's just making me feel really bad and, you know what, I don't want to feel like this. And so I've had some big setbacks and things that haven't necessarily come from bad decisions, but maybe it's come because I've been too heart focused and I haven't been strong enough and I haven't been using my mind and been clever enough, you know. And I look and I and I could go, oh God, I was so silly because I just used my heart and I I let so many people take advantage of me because I just wanted to help people and you know. But it's like, well, you know, I had to almost go to that extreme. It's the same with corporate. I was in the extreme. I was in a very high paid role. It wasn't like I was just come, you know, comfortable. I was extremely well paid and I ticked all the boxes and gone well beyond what I thought was even possible. And I had to have that extreme to be in Hong Kong to go, well, I'm still not happy. You know, and if I'd just been in a sort of a job that didn't push me and didn't require my passion, you know, through my corporate career, I wouldn't have reached that point to go, well, okay, that didn't work. You know, we're all we're all on the search for happiness and that's all it's been about. It's just we forget. And, you know, and then the other extreme, I'm like, okay, well, being a big marshmallow running my charity in that way isn't making me happy. So, oh, okay, I need the corporate me back. And then I had to work out how to bring her back, but not in a way where I felt, you know, that maybe I didn't want to feel I was, you know, ruthless or any, any words that I would have put with what, you know, you could potentially be in a corporate position. So, yeah, and I'm better at bouncing back and that. But I don't know. I I don't know. There's – you just – I try now to – you know, you talk about mistakes and then you said, well, they're just different journeys. And I think, you know, I'm starting to see the bigger picture because I've been doing all of this for years and – start to realizing actually everything serves a purpose. And actually every job I've had, I've used those skills in what I do now. And well, now that I'm transforming Testigo into something else again, you know, having much more control over how I bring the money in, it's just another it's another stage. It's, it's just another journey. But I've put in everything I've learned now from both both sides of me, both the corporate side and the not-for-profit side. And I think that's one of the big take, you know, takeaways from this is, you know, you can bash yourself up about all sorts of things if you really want to. But if you want to be happy, that's not going to serve happiness. And I come back now all the time. I have my big goals, but the biggest goal is happiness. And then if the others don't lead to happiness, then I adjust them.
0: It's 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 funny you were uh, one of the things that I often talk to my patients about because uh, I I work a lot in mental health I talk about the concept of what I I dub objective happiness it's this idea that if you tick the right boxes if you do all the right things that everyone tells you should make you happy you should therefore be happy and it's quite a common lament amongst these patients going why aren't I happy I should be fine I have all these things and I think people forget that firstly it, you know it, happiness shouldn't be Externally sourced, it should come from within. Um, and secondly, um, I think that people forget that there's different kinds of happiness. That the kind of happiness that makes someone else happy isn't necessarily the thing that works for you. But too often we're on we're in the search for the right rules or the right lists or the right you know we we want we want that certainty. We want to think oh if I do this thing it'll make me happy. But sometimes it is about just sort of exploring it is about looking around at your world both locally and and globally and kind of think well is there something else out there that might bring me happiness and i think again from what you've described we aren't just one thing you know we are we are we are left and right brained we have an entire brain we don't use all one or all the other we use both and to varying degrees and it's about you know discovering your identity figuring out how you're going to merge those two things and also being willing to accept that it is going to change that you as a 20 year old is going to be very different from you as a 30 year old is going to be very different from you as a 40 year old and that's okay that's actually just part of the natural course of life really
1: yeah exactly and then you know i think back i was striving for happiness i was looking for it you know and I wanted my happiness from my corporate career because I felt there's more control in a corporate career to get happiness than there is in people. You know, it's more challenging to be happy for me anyway to find happiness among people. I thought, right, I'll just do my career and I'll be happy because I'll achieve everything and I'll, I'll be, I'll have got there. But there's no there. And I think that's the thing, you know. And I, I. I was brought to my knees a few times in Tanzania, but one of those times I was devastated, absolutely devastated. And then I would be in Maasai land, and I remember one time, you know, I was I was in so much pain and I'd lost lots of weight and I just didn't know how to – I was just – I didn't even want to wake up because I'd be in pain again. And in Maasai land, this lady, Maasai lady had a little baby, you know, she was holding And this baby just looked at me and laughed, like gurgled with a teethless smile. And I looked back and laughed at it. And we just had this eye contact. And I felt this joy rise up in me. And I thought, wow. And it wasn't necessarily happiness, but it was this joy that I didn't strive for. I didn't control. It just happened. And, you know, even now in this, you know, corona period we're going through, I was chatting to a friend the other night and I said, I'm happy. I'm really surprised but I'm I'm happy. I'm I'm okay. I'm doing really well. And it was almost like gee am I allowed to even say that in this time? Because um, <laughs> you know we, we we probably shouldn't be happy, but I am because I'm not relying on external circumstances to make me happy because if I did I wouldn't be. You know, but um, I'm not. It's, an in, it's something else, and you can't strive for it. It's allowing it. We are by nature happy. You know, we, we are by nature joyful beings. We just cover it up and we lose it, and it's uncovering. And it's taking all those, you know, like they say, the onion, you know, you peel an onion, you've got layers and layers. It's just, it's doing it, and it's hard. And look, you know, when I first started facing myself, which is what I actually had to do after Hong Kong, I had to face myself. And that is extremely hard because I've been keeping so busy running away from myself. So I'm not saying it's easy, but that was the key. And when you start doing that, you, you're, the real you can come out. And it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a call we all go through. You know, they say they call these things midlife crisis, but the midlife crisis is just that, the soul saying it's time. It's time. You've done all that stuff. You've done the money stuff. You've done the acquiring your, you know, your house or your car or whatever it is you're doing. Now's the time to be who you're meant to be here. So, yeah, happiness is you just can't look for it because it's if you look for it, you're actually saying it's not there, but it's already there. You just got to uncover it.
0: So, I mean, look, I think I think a lot of this conversation, there's, there are a lot of lessons to be learned. But if you could, you know, if there's one piece of advice you could give to the next generation, whether it be about charities or happiness or whatever it is what is the most important thing you would want them to know or understand
1: I'd say follow your passion because everything else come everything else comes after that all the doors will open if you follow your passion and if you don't know your passion it's okay because it will come it's there people worry oh i don't know what I'm passionate about the thing that i've seen too a lot of people know their passion but then they go yeah but i've got a mortgage and plus i've got a good job and plus whatever it's like, no, you can work on it. You can, you can still keep your job for a while like you have, you know. You, you can do both. But Once you know, once you have an inkling of what you like, what makes you happy, don't start dismissing it. Oh, I can't do that because it won't earn me money because all the doors will open if you live in your passion.
0: And that's a beautiful way to end the podcast. So thanks again, Tracy, for joining us on the show.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. So I hope you enjoyed what you've heard there. Uh, Make sure to check out our older episodes, which can be found on the website uh, and on ACAST or wherever you get good podcasts. And do remember to connect in with us on social media. So thanks for joining us. And uh, as always, remember there are no small jobs, only jobs you haven't discovered yet.